This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, February 15th, 2023. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley telling a crowd in her home state of South Carolina the country needs to move past the stale ideas and faded names of the past and have a new generation to lead us into the future. Coming up, we'll hear from the former governor and talk about her campaign for the White House with Politico senior staff writer Michael Cruz. President Joe Biden with more pointed attacks on congressional Republicans and their goal of trying to tie the federal debt increase to spending cuts, saying the Republicans' agenda would increase the federal budget deficit by over $3 trillion in a decade. Congressional Budget Office Director Philip Swagel out with new budget forecasts and an updated estimate of when the U.S. would need to raise the debt limit to avoid default, he says sometime between July and September of this year. IRS Commissioner nominee Daniel Werfel gets a confirmation hearing before the Senate Finance Committee and pledges that the $80 billion in new funding that the IRS got for enforcement in a bill last year will not be used to increase audits for individuals or businesses that make under $400,000 per year. The FAA Acting Administrator Bill Nolan telling the Senate Commerce Committee that steps are being taken to prevent a repeat of January's computer system failure that led to the grounding of all flights in the U.S. for a few hours. And the DEA Administrator Ann Milgram before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee talking about the dominance of two drug cartels in Mexico supplying the fentanyl that is killing over 100,000 Americans every year. Fox News reporting. Dateline Charleston, South Carolina, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina and former U.N. ambassador, formally launched her campaign for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination Wednesday before a packed crowd of supporters. Haley's campaign kickoff event comes one day after she declared her candidacy for president, emphasizing in a social media video that it's time for a new generation of leadership. I stand before you as the daughter of immigrants as the proud wife of a combat veteran, and as the mom of two amazing children. I've served as governor of the great state of South Carolina, (laughs) and as America's ambassador to the United Nations. And above all else, I'm a grateful American citizen who knows our best days are yet to come if we unite and fight to save our country. I have devoted my life to this fight, and I'm just getting started. For a strong America, for a proud America, I am running for president of the United States of America. Nikki Haley in Charleston, South Carolina today. She is the second major Republican candidate in the 2024 race for the White House after former President Donald Trump, who launched his campaign in November. Today, Nikki Haley mentioned Donald Trump's name in reference to her job as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations 2017 through 18. She also talked about her time as South Carolina Governor 2011 through 17. More from her speech today. We cut taxes, created thousands of jobs, and revitalized our economy. Business journals started calling South Carolina the beast of the Southeast, which I love. And when President Trump nominated me for ambassador to the United Nations, people said I didn't have the experience. Then I went to work. (laughs) 
I told the world that America would have the backs of our allies, and for those who didn't have our backs, we were taking names. The dictators, murderers, and thieves at the UN didn't know what hit them. I've been underestimated before. That's always fun. And I've been shaking up the status quo my entire life. As I set out on this new journey, I will simply say this. May the best woman win. Nikki Haley, Republican presidential candidate in Charleston, South Carolina. Also during her speech, she called for mandatory mental competency tests for politicians older than 75. Both President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are beyond that age. Nikki Haley is 51 years old. And as in her announcement video from Monday, she called for a new generation of leaders. Always had a deep belief in America. But I know America is better than all the division and distractions that we have today. And I'm confident that the American people agree. We're ready, ready to move past the stale ideas and faded names of the past. And we are more than ready for a new generation to lead us into the future. With more on Nikki Haley's campaign for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024, on the phone is Michael Cruz, senior staff writer at Politico and Politico magazine. Thank you so much for being here. So what issues and themes is Nikki Haley basing her campaign on? I think she's running on something she's run on before, which is a compelling backstory. She is the daughter of Indian immigrants. Uh, She is a brown person in a world that is so often black and white. It's certainly uh, a theme that she ran on uh, in her very first campaigns for the state legislature in South Carolina. It's a theme she ran on to become governor of South Carolina in 2010. And I think it's still compelling to some extent. She, of course, has some uh, needles to thread uh, with respect to Donald Trump. She's had an up and down uh, relationship rhetorically and personally with the former president. And I think that is uh, is going to be uh, continue to be a difficult nut to crack for her in the coming campaign here. Some of the speakers at today's campaign rally in South Carolina included Congressman Ralph Norman, a member of the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives, Pastor John Hagee and the mother of Otto Warmbier. Hearing those names, what does that say about how she's pursuing this? Well, there's some interesting, interesting backers, interesting uh, endorsers. Um, already having a member of Congress um, uh, come out and support is is notable. She, I think, starts just to be uh, candid as a as a long shot. Um, there's obviously a long way to go, but your name is not Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis at this point. You are. Uh, you are starting from a uh, pretty low polling position. She is in the low single digit, uh, but every bit of that support helps. And there's a long way to go. Who knows uh, what you know the political staying power of Trump is in the coming months? Uh, who knows how Ron DeSantis performs on the stump once he is officially a presidential candidate? So there is uh, potential for somebody who's not those two uh, to make play. And Nikki Haley is... And it always has been an interesting uh, political candidate, an interesting uh, elected official. Uh, she doesn't look like anybody else in the field, right? She is a woman. She is a, uh, a, a non-white woman. And that alone makes her uh, an interesting person to watch in the fledgling Republican primary process here. She's the first major candidate to get in to challenge Donald Trump. What are the advantages and disadvantages of being first? I think the, the, the advantage, obviously, is you get out there, you get people talking about you. Uh, somebody had to do it. You can be seen as a person who is now challenging Trump after having worked in his administration as his U.N. Amb- ambassador, uh, after, of course, having been a pretty vehement critic of his in the 2016 campaign. 
you know, she'll be, I think, um, the only person challenging him for a little bit here, depending on who else gets in and when. Uh, it seems as if Ron DeSantis will not get in until after the Florida legislative session, which is later this spring. Same sort of principle applies to some of the other big names we're waiting on. So she will have uh, she will have a, a runway here to make her case uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a field that is not yet crowded, to say the least. The disadvantage, of course, is she's the only one out there who's officially challenging Donald Trump now. And we typically know what that means. Uh, you know, the Trump campaign and Trump interests already today have started to go after her. I've started to uh, send out emails with some uh, questionable comments of hers from the past. So she's out there uh, all by her lonesome uh, as, as, as a Trump attacky, which is never a particularly comfortable place for any politician to be. We're talking with Politico senior staff writer Michael Cruz. You wrote an article at Politico.com titled 55 Things You Need to Know About Nikki Haley. What are some of the more interesting items on that list? I would say that perhaps my favorite item of these 55 is that she married a man she met on her first weekend at college at Clemson University named Bill Haley. And shortly thereafter, convinced him to change his name, not change his name, use his middle name. But uh, her husband is Michael Haley and has been Michael Haley, not Bill Haley, uh, ever since, purely because of uh, Nick Haley's decision uh, that he uh, looked more like a Michael than a bill. Uh, it speaks to sort of powers of persuasion, uh, speaks to sort of a suburban, suburban street. Uh, she is a person who uh, has been known to get what she wants. Uh, we will see if that continues. But that is, uh, that is something that, that can be said about her that I, I, I don't think can be said about any other uh, major political candidate in this presidential cycle to this point. Michael Cruz, senior staff writer at Politico and Politico magazine. That story and others by him at Politico.com and on Twitter at Michael Cruz. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. And while Nikki Haley was holding her presidential campaign rally in Charleston, South Carolina, a mobile billboard sponsored by the South Carolina Democratic Party was driving around the venue, playing a montage of past video clips of Nikki Haley talking about former President Donald Trump. I would not run if President Trump ran. Most of the policies that he did, I totally agree with. We have a great working relationship. In every instance that I dealt with him, he was truthful, he listened, and he was great to work with. Well, he would never knowingly lie. I had a great working relationship with him. I consider him a friend. Is there anything specifically off the top of your head that you would do differently or that you disagree with him on? What I will tell you is... His actions are solid, and that's what I appreciate about him. Video montage of Nikki Haley clips put together by the South Carolina Democratic Party and that last sound effect of videotape being fast forwarded during that part. There's a graphic on the screen that reads dodging question. A White House fact sheet released today begins. Congressional Republican leaders insist that the national debt is among our nation's greatest challenges and reducing it is among their highest priorities. In fact, they, they claim that reducing the debt is so urgent it warrants endangering the entire U.S. economy through debt limit brinksmanship. But their legislative agenda to date points to a very different direction with proposals that would increase the debt by over $3 trillion. This White House fact sheet goes on to list specific Republican proposed bills, one that would repeal provisions of last year's law that lowered the price of prescription drugs. White House says that would add $159 billion to the debt. Another one repealing tax increases on corporations, $296 billion to the debt. Another one repealing increased funding for the IRS for enforcement, $114 billion for the debt. And a proposal to extend the Donald Trump era tax cuts, which expire in 2025, $2.7 trillion to the national debt over a decade. That from the White House. President Biden speaking about this at the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union Hall in Lanham, Maryland today. To say you want to reduce the deficit, but their plans are going to increase the deficit by $3 trillion based on what they introduced so far. So where are they going to cut? They're going to cut Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, they're going to cut Social Security or Medicare, veterans benefits, aid to farmers. At the State of the Union, they seem to say they're not going to cut Social Security or Medicare. 
Okay, great. I hope that's true. But how are they going to make these numbers add up? Add up. Here's the deal. If Republicans try to take away people's health care, increase costs for middle-class families, or push Americans into poverty, I'm going to stop them. I'm going to stop them. And let's remember, the previous administration, America's deficit went up every year, four years in a row. Because of those record deficits, no president added more to the national debt. That's a 200-year debt. Never had more to the national debt than my predecessor. Nearly 25 percent of the entire national debt accumulated over 200 years was accumulated as a consequence of the tax cut in this last administration and other spending. And how did Congress respond to all that debt? They passed the debt ceiling three times without, without preconditions or crisis. If we paid Americans' bills then, why won't we pay them now? Let's, put, let's pay the debt accumulated over 200 years. If you couldn't throw the country into a crisis then, why would you want to throw it into a crisis now? They wouldn't inflict pain on the American people then. Why would they do it now? Well, I tell you why. It's just politics. And they've got no business playing politics with people's lives and the full faith and credit of the United States. President Biden at the IBEW Local 26 Union Hall in Atlanta, Maryland today. The U.S. House representatives not in session this week. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican from South Carolina, was interviewed Tuesday night on the PBS NewsHour about the budget and the debt ceiling. Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling uh, in order for the U.S. to avoid defaulting on its debt. Do you think that your party should be holding up that vote to try and get spending cuts, as some of your colleagues have said they want to do? We have a real problem with spending in this country. Um, I would like to see some sort of budget reform as part of the debt ceiling. I think now is a good, as good a time as ever. Uh, this, the debt ceiling was originally started um, right after World War II to help with the war and paying for the war. And um, it's really important that we understand that that has been abused over the years by Republicans and Democrats. It's both sides. We're at $31 trillion in debt, $5 trillion under this current administration, $8 trillion under the previous administration, and the list goes on and on. And we need to have serious reforms about the budget now uh, rather than kicking the can down the road. And I hope it's part of this vote. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace from South Carolina on the PBS NewsHour Tuesday night. Congressional Budget Office today releasing an updated federal budget outlook, the first since the enactment of last year's climate and health care bill, commonly referred to as the Inflation Reduction Act. That was $430 billion. And then there was the regular fiscal year 2023 Federal budget, $1.7 trillion, half of that defense spending. That bill also had additional aid for Ukraine. And CBO also out today with a report on the expected deadline for raising the federal debt limit to avoid a default. First, here's the CBO director, Philip Swagel, on the budget outlook. So in our latest projections released today, the federal budget deficit totals $1.4 trillion in 2023, and deficits average $2 trillion over the 2024 to 2033 period. So those projections reflect the assumption that current laws governing federal taxes and spending generally remain unchanged. The deficit amounts to 5.3% of GDP in 2023, and grows to 6.9% of GDP in 2033. That's significantly larger than the 3.6% of GDP that deficits have averaged over the past 50 years. And here on the screen, you see those deficit figures. The cumulative deficit over the 2023 to 2032 period that we now project is $3 trillion larger than we projected last May mainly because of newly enacted legislation and changes to the economic forecast that boost interest costs and spending on mandatory programs. The federal debt held by the public is projected to rise from 98% of GDP in 2023 to 118% in 2033. That's an averaging increase of two percentage points per year. So over that period, the growth of interest costs and mandatory spending outpaces the growth of revenue and the economy, driving up debt. Those factors persist beyond 2033, pushing federal debt higher still to 195% of GDP in 2053. 
Congressional Budget Office Director Philip Swagel at a news conference today on Capitol Hill, actually more of a roundtable discussion that we covered on C-SPAN. He was at a table with reporters around it. As you heard as well, there were slides. We covered it by our C-SPAN cameras, and you can find the video at cspan.org. He mentioned the mandatory programs. The, the big ones are Social Security and Medicare. And the federal spending on them, he says, projected to rise dramatically over the next decade, outpacing revenues and the economy on the whole. And part of the reason for that, Social Security's new cost of living adjustment, the rising cost of medical services under Medicare, and also greater participation in both programs as the last of the baby boomers become eligible for retirement benefits. CBO Director Swagel also giving a projection of when the U.S. will run out of accounting maneuvers on the national debt ceiling and need to cut outlays or go into default. So regarding the debt ceiling, the limit on debt of $31.4 trillion was reached on January 19th earlier this year. The Treasury began to take the well-established so-called extraordinary measures to borrow additional funds. We project that if the debt limit remains unchanged, the government's ability to borrow using these extraordinary measures will be exhausted between July and September of 2023 of this year. Now, that projected exhaustion date is uncertain because the timing and amount of revenue collections and outlays over the intervening months could differ from our projections. Now, in particular, income tax receipts in April could be more or less than we estimate. We'll get information on that in April and into May. If those receipts fell short of estimated amounts, for example, if capital gains realizations in 2022 were smaller or if U.S. income growth slowed by more early this year than we project, the extraordinary measures could be exhausted sooner and the Treasury could run out of funds before July. Now, if the debt limit is not raised or suspended before the extraordinary measures are, measures are exhausted, the government would be unable to pay its obligations fully. As a result, the U.S. government would have to delay making payments for some activities, default on its debt obligations, or both. CBO Director Philip Swagel at a roundtable discussion with reporters on Capitol Hill. He has been CBO Director since 2019. From CNN, President Joe Biden's pick to lead the Internal Revenue Service was grilled by lawmakers Wednesday over how he intends to oversee the use of $80 billion in new funding coming to the agency over the next decade. Daniel Werfel, a former acting IRS commissioner, testified before the Senate Committee on Finance Wednesday morning. The full Senate, which is controlled narrowly by Democrats, is expected to later approve his nomination. But first, Daniel Orfel faced hard questions about how he will use the new money to revitalize the struggling tax agency and which taxpayers may face increased audit rates. That from CNN. Here's the opening statement from the nominee in which he reiterated a pledge made by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen about who will be audited. Following the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, Americans rightly expect a more modern and high-performing IRS. Last year, Secretary Yellen issued a directive that the IRS will not increase audit rates for small businesses and households making under $400,000, which I am committed to meeting. Therefore, if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed, the audit and compliance priorities will be focused on enhancing IRS's capabilities to ensure that America's highest earners comply with applicable tax laws. Also front and center will be efforts to modernize and dramatically improve taxpayer service. If confirmed, I will lead these efforts in close collaboration with this committee and will be unyielding in following my true north to increase public trust. Daniel Werfel nominated to be IRS commissioner before the Senate Finance Committee today. His experience also includes 16 years in the White House's Office of Management and Budget. Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho is the committee's ranking Republican, and today he asked the nominee about whether that pledge of no additional audits for people and businesses making under $400,000 a year can be kept if, as a study suggests, most of the uncollected taxes, the tax gap, is owed by small businesses. I'm very concerned about the use of the funds for the enforcement part of the plan. We have never had an argument in this committee about whether we need to give the IRS the necessary resources to bring itself technologically into the 21st century and to get the adequate response to the taxpayers that they now don't get so that the IRS can even answer the telephone, so to speak, when taxpayers are trying to communicate with them. The battle has been over this completely 
uncontrolled and undefined commitment of 60% of the $80 billion to enforcement. And there's been a lot of talk about, well, we only want to enforce this against those who are rich, super rich tax cheats. But yet when I brought that amendment I referenced earlier, no one would support it and put that right into the law. So I want to get into that. From the IRS's own data, the two largest single components of the tax gap that's the difference between taxes owed and paid, are small businesses, small business income, and individual non-business income. In response to my questions, the Nonpartisan Joint Committee on Taxation told us that these shortfalls are overwhelming. They are upwards of 90%, and they all, upwards to 90% of these shortfalls fall on hardworking Americans with modest incomes, far under $400,000. Now, Secretary Yellen reportedly has said she's directed the IRS not to use this somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 billion to enforce against people with incomes less than $400,000. My colleague, the chair, has said that is not to be done. What I want to know is how strong will you make that commitment? The language we've gotten from the secretary was in this term of, well, we want to get balance. I don't want to know balance. I want to know whether you are going to commit today that the plan will not allow this supersized enforcement money to be utilized against people who make less than $400,000 per year. Will you make that commitment? Senator, yes, and I, uh, I made that commitment in my official statement for the record. I am committed to uh, Secretary Yellen's uh, uh, directive on how the audit should move forward under the Inflation Reduction Act and um, look forward to working with you and you holding me accountable for that. Well, thank you. Uh, Secretary Yellen's statement leaves a lot of wiggle room. I want to be sure you know that I don't, I don't expect to see wiggle room in this commitment. Senator Mike Crapo, Republican from Idaho, ranking member on the Finance Committee, questioning Danny Werfel, nominated to be IRS commissioner at today's hearing. More from the CNN article. Uh, the IRS has hired 5,000 new customer service agents since the Inflation Reduction Act passed, and Treasury officials say the new funding is already making a difference. For the first two weeks of this year's filing season, Live IRS agents answered 89% of customer calls, and when counting those answered with automated assistance, the IRS answered 93% of calls. Those rates are a stark contrast to last year when the IRS was able to answer just 13% of calls. Also, this story from CBS from two weeks ago that the nominee was asked about, black Americans are up to five times more likely to have their federal tax returns audited and taxpayers of other races, according to new study from the Stanford Institute of Economic Policy Research. The higher audit rate for black taxpayers is due to a flawed AI algorithm relied on by the IRS to decide who gets audited, the study's authors said. And nominee Danny Werfel says that he will look into this if he is confirmed. Wall Street today, the Dow up 58, NASDAQ up 110, S&P up 11. And World Bank Chief David Malpass, appointed by former President Donald Trump, is stepping down from that organization by the end of June, he says. And this comes after U.S. House Democrats called on him to resign following comments that he made that implied that climate change is not real. Washington Today continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you get your podcasts. A few more headlines. A white supremacist who killed 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket last year has been sentenced to life in prison without parole. 19-year-old Peyton Jenrin apologized before the sentencing, saying, I did a terrible thing that day. I shot and killed people because they are black. 
Looking back now, I can't believe I actually did it. I believed what I read online and acted out of hate. I know I can't take it back, but I wish I could, and I don't want anyone to be inspired by me and what I did. Republican Senators Marco Rubio of Florida and J.D. Vance of Ohio writing a letter to the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg over the department's oversight of the U.S. rail system after the big train derailment in Ohio that continues to spill toxic chemicals. Two senators asking for information about how the Transportation Department, quote, balances building a safe, resilient rail industry across our country in relation to building a hyper-efficient one with minimal direct human input. And the office of Congressman Matt Gaetz, Republican of Florida, says the U.S. Justice Department will not charge him with any crimes after a sex trafficking investigation. Congressman Gates has maintained his innocence since it was first reported in 2021 that he was under investigation over whether he had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl and paid for her to travel with him. The Federal Aviation Administration Acting Administrator Billy Nolan testifying today before the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee about the outage of NOTAMS, the Notice to Air Missions Safety Alert computer system. Back in January, it caused a temporary stoppage of all airline flights in the U.S. He said the outage was due to a contractor unintentionally deleting files during a system update. Bill Nolan said there are new procedures in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. Committee Chair Senator Maria Cantwell, Democrat from Washington State, asked about a more permanent fix. You know, the NTSB is, you know, the authorization bill, we wanted to make progress on this. And so they're basically saying that we aren't making progress on this. What What is your response to how we're going to feel not waiting till 2025? I get that you're saying now I'm going to back up on the human factor, really is what you're saying. I'm going to back up on the human factor and make sure that this never happens because of an individual, one individual being on the spot. But really it's the architecture of the system that doesn't give us true redundancy. So is there a way to solve that before we uh, you know, go two years into the modernization? Yeah, we will continue on this journey of modernization. I've asked and I've directed our teams to look at what is our ability to accelerate that timeline? Can we pull it into 20? I'm asking you, what can you do about the existing system today to yes. give you true redundancy? You're trying to give me human factor redundancy in another individual, but when in reality I'm pointing out that the architecture of the system isn't true redundancy because if the deletion impacted both systems, yes. then then it then you don't really have redundancy. You don't have a separate you know, reboot, you know, our electricity goes off on our house, we go to the generator if you have one, right? Yes. So in this case, the backup didn't work either because it was affected by the same deletion. So you don't have to answer all of it right here, but uh, I need an answer on this uh, issue of, of redundancy to the system because while we want to modernize and, and we want to have the right resources and we got a pretty good offer from our colleague to drill down with us on the appropriation side to make sure that we have a clear understanding. And I really do think this has been an issue in the past. I really do think that appropriators need to understand the technology needs of the FAA and support them. But what can we, what can we do now to make sure this doesn't happen again? Well, thank you. Uh, several things that we've done. Number one, we have instituted a one-hour synchronization delay between the primary database and the backup database. That gives us time to make sure that we have no issues there. Secondly, we've, we've increased the level of oversight to ensure that more than one person is available when work or updates are being done on the live database, along with an upgrading, uh, up-leveling our level of oversight within the command center to ensure that we've got leadership present. So those are, of course, are more in the area of administrative controls, but the work continues to get off of the U.S. NOTAM system yep. and onto the federal I, I'm, I'm going to come back at you and ask that you work with contractors to find out how to get us true redundancy in the short term in a backup database that is truly independent and could operate if the same instance happened again. Before I... Um, so in my sense of this near miss with Southwest Airlines and a, and a cargo carrier, was Southwest in a position earlier than their slot? Is that what happened? 
Well, what happened in, in Texas, in, in Austin, is that uh, something we would not expect to happen during low visibility operation where Southwest was cleared for takeoff and FedEx was cleared for approach in close proximity to each other. That investigation is underway by the National Transportation Safety Board and the FAA. So we're looking at every aspect of it and we'll certainly provide updates, but it is not something we expected to have taken place. Rightfully so, uh, the FedEx crew saw the uh, Southwest. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm asking if you have an answer today about why this occurred. No, ma'am, that investigation is still ongoing, but we'll certainly provide an update. Thank you, Senator time. Cruz. That's Senator Maria Cantwell, Democrat from Washington State, chair of the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee, questioning the witness, FAA Acting Administrator Billy Nolan. And he said that because of that NOTAM system mishap and the recent several collision close calls involving planes from major U.S. airlines, he is starting a safety review team and will be holding a meeting of commercial and general aviation leaders next month. From the Associated Press, China said Wednesday it will take measures against U.S. entities related to the downing of a suspected Chinese spy balloon off the American East Coast. In a daily briefing, Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin gave no details and did not identify the targets of the measures. China says the balloon was an unmanned weather airstrip that was accidentally blown off course and accuses the U.S. of overreacting in bringing it down with a missile fired from an F-22 fighter jet. And since the February 4th downing of the balloon, the U.S. has sanctioned six Chinese entities it said are linked to Beijing's aerospace programs. That from Associated Press. Since then as well, the U.S. military has shot down three other floating objects over the United States and Canada. Today, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin confirming that no other objects have been identified since. He took a reporter's question at a news conference in Brussels, Belgium at NATO headquarters. Final question will go to Bill Hennigan, Time Magazine. Sir, in the last 24 hours, we've heard that a F-16 shot at and missed a flying object over Lake Huron, and that the objects themselves may likely be for research or some other benign reason. Given that there's been no other shootdowns in the past two days after we had three in a row, is the military now more wary to engage these objects? And then secondly, it seems that the debris is located in some hard-to-reach places, to put it lightly. So how important is the recovery of this wreckage in dis, um, to, de, to deciding um, the policy ahead? Thanks, Bill. I, I'm not aware of any additional objects that have been reported uh, operating in the, in the space in the last 48 hours. So, um, But in terms of whether or not the debris is, is important, it's absolutely important. And we're going to do everything we can to uh, recover debris if, if it's possible. Um, that will help us learn a lot more about, you know, what these uh, objects are. Um, we're also working with other agencies, uh, NASA, FAA, FBI, and, and everybody in the community who may have a, uh, an interest in operating in this space to learn more about, uh, you know, what, what these could have possibly been. And so I would just tell you that the safety and security of the American people, uh, are, that's, uh, that's the thing that's most important to me and to everybody on, on the uh, DOD team and throughout the interagency. So we're going to continue to drill until we, until we learn as much as we can about, uh, about you know, what these objects are and why they were operating in those spaces. Uh, and we, we will always err on the side of caution, but, uh, but again... Um, there's a lot to be learned uh, going forward. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium, a closing news conference. He was there primarily to discuss aid to Ukraine in its fight against Russia's invasion. A Washington Post story this morning reads, by the time a Chinese spy balloon crossed into American airspace late last month, U.S. military and intelligence agencies had been tracking it for nearly a week, watching it as it lift off, lifted off from its home base. Near China's south coast, U.S. monitors watched as the balloon settled into a flight path that would appear to have taken it over the U.S. territory of Guam. But somewhere along the easterly route, the craft took an unexpected northern turn, according to several U.S. officials, who said that analysts are now examining the possibility that China didn't intend to penetrate the U.S. heartland with its airborne surveillance device. 
That from the Washington Post. And this is Washington Today. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican from Iowa, who recently traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border with a congressional delegation accusing China of intentionally poisoning America by its continued production and sale of the drug fentanyl. She tells CBS News that Chinese are selling these precursor chemicals into Mexico. Then the Mexican cartels are working on making the fentanyl and distributing it up into the United States. Today, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee held a hearing looking at fentanyl trafficking. The chair, Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, questioning the Drug Enforcement Administrator, Ann Milgram, and Todd Robinson, Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics Law Enforcement Affairs, about the role of Mexico. Dealing with this problem without a partner in Mexico is not possible. Um, the two cartels that you mentioned emanate from Mexico. Um, it's impossible to tackle fentanyl trafficking without a productive partnership with Mexico. However, there are obstacles to improving cooperation. Mexico's increased politicized national prosecutor's office has shown little appetite to prosecute fentanyl-related cases. Collusion between cartels and Mexico authorities is a recurring challenge as seen in the ongoing trial of former security minister Garcia Luna. And Mexican authorities seem unwilling to acknowledge that the vast majority of fentanyl entering the United States is manufactured in clandestine labs in Mexico. Uh, So what is it uh, that we are doing with the López Obrador government to change that reality. As you go after these cartels, uh, do you, uh, is it your assessment that uh, uh, the primary obstacles to improving cooperation with Mexican authorities to combat fentanyl trafficking is that uh, either we don't have a willing partner or uh, that in fact the state itself uh, is infiltrated uh, by the cartels? Senator, thank you for that question. We believe Mexico needs to do more to stop the harm that we're seeing. As I stated, what we're seeing is that these two cartels in Mexico, the Sinaloa and the Jalisco cartel, are dominating and controlling the entire global supply chain of fentanyl. And they are operating throughout Mexico. The Sinaloa cartel, we believe, is operating in 19 of 32 Mexican states, and the Jalisco cartel is operating in 23 of 32 Mexican states. What we know is that Mexico in the past worked relentlessly from 2012 to 2015 to disrupt one of the most violent criminal networks in Mexico, the Zetas, and they were effective at dismantling that cartel. We want Mexico to do the same thing here, to make their top operational priority also to defeat the two cartels that we believe are responsible for the fentanyl as well as the methamphetamine that is responsible for the loss of American lives today. But that's not the present state of Mexico's will. Secretary Robinson. Uh, Thank you, Senator, for that question. Uh, I, um, I would say that uh, we, in the conversations we've had, uh, Mexico is willing to do more. Uh, they have actively engaged with us both through the, uh, the U.S. Uh, bicentennial, uh, U.S.-Mexico bicentennial framework, where they have committed uh, to doing more. They've also committed to doing more uh, in the discussions we've had in the North American Drug Dialogue. Um, what we've been asking Mexico to do is uh, uh, put more resources into this effort, uh, which is, you know, uh, obviously a, a for for Mexico and the Mexican government uh, a domestic issue. For us, it's an international issue. For us, it's a national security issue. Um, the the amount of resources they put into uh, this effort is for them a domestic issue, and and it's something that we're we're trying to deal with. I have to be honest with you. I I don't see it. I just don't see it. Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat from New Jersey, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, questioning the DEA Administrator Ann Milgram and the Assistant Secretary of State Todd Robinson. Administrator Milgram says that last year the U.S. seized 57 million fake fentanyl pills and more than 13,000 pounds of fentanyl 
which is the equivalent of 410 million potentially deadly doses. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, today asking Administrator Milgram about the intersection of illegal drug trafficking and illegal immigration. So is that a yes, that you would agree that CBP officers, both on the southern border and the ports of entry, play a critical role in interdicting drugs? Yes, Senator. I believe it's, it's a DHS responsibility, and it's a critical one. So if, if we decided to cut the number of Border Patrol agents dramatically, let's say in half, would you agree that would hurt our efforts to stop illegal drugs? Senator, I would, I would defer some of this to the Department of Homeland Security and Secretary Mayorkas. You're not um, willing to answer that question? But here's, here's what I would say about this. We believe that DHS plays vital defense. Okay, okay, those are talking points. Would cutting the number of CBP agents in half hurt our ability to stop drugs, yes or no? Senator, I believe it would. Okay. That's effectively what's happened under the Biden administration. Because right now today, more than half of the, of the CBP agents are engaged in housekeeping and chauffeurs and babysitting of the 5.5 million illegal aliens who have crossed the border. They're not on the border. They're not at the ports of entry. They're instead processing the highest rate of illegal immigration in history. Now, Democrat members of Congress have the remarkable claim that the open borders under Joe Biden has no impact on the record fentanyl and drugs that are flooding across our borders. Between October 2021 and September 2022, one CBP source estimated there were 364,000 gotaways, people that ran away at the southern border. Another Border Patrol officials put the number of gotaways at 1.2 million. Gotaways can vary from terrorists on the terror watch list. In fiscal year 20, 2022, 98 people on the terror watch list were encountered at the southern border that we know of or they can be drug dealers carrying drugs. Is that correct? Senator, I'm going I'm to defer questions on the border and the ports of entry to the Department of Homeland Security. So the DEA has no view on whether drug dealers crossing the border carry drugs? Senator, as I said from our investigations, what we see is that the majority of fentanyl I didn't ask the majority. The I, I, I said drug dealers and gotaways are carrying drugs, many of them. Senator, what we see is mostly interdict, what we, what we see is mostly tractor trailers and personal vehicles. All right, so you're sticking fentanyl. to the talking points closely, and congratulations, it's the Democrat talking points, that the open borders don't matter, but 328,000 or 1.2 uh, million gotaways don't matter. We had 100,000 people die last year of drug overdoses. My sister died of a drug overdose just over a decade ago. This is a crisis, but it is a man-made crisis. This administration made a conscious political decision to open the borders. And one of the results is they have turned Mexican drug cartels into multi-billionaires. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, questioning the Drug Enforcement Administration Administrator Ann Milgram at today's Foreign Relations Committee hearing. C-SPAN covered it all. You can find the video at cspan.org. Yesterday, we played the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's tribute to Senator Dianne Feinstein, both Democrats. Senator Feinstein deciding not to seek re-election in 2024, Senator from California. Today, the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, speaking about that. The two, Senator McConnell and Senator Feinstein, have served together in the Senate for over 30 years since Senator Feinstein first elected in 1992. And Senator McConnell spoke about her trailblazing accomplishments and their friendship. She was the first woman to serve as president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. While in office, she endured a failed attempt to bomb her home. Then her predecessor as mayor was assassinated. That's when Diane became the city's first female mayor. Then she badly beat an attempted recall. By the time this trailblazer became Senator Feinstein, <clears throat> there was frankly nothing that could phase her. Diane has been the top Democrat on the Rules Committee, the Intelligence Committee, and the Judiciary Committee. For decades, she's been one of our country's most formidable legislators across numerous subjects. 
And somehow, amid it all, this battle-tested veteran stateswoman has maintained a genuine warmth and collegiality that cuts through even the tensest debates. Now, Elaine and I have been fortunate to count Diane a friend for many years. Elaine and Dick served on a board together in the private sector years ago. Uh, frequently, when Dick was in town, the four of us would go out to dinner. Uh, we had a genuine friendship. So, as you can imagine, um, we hated to lose Dick recently. But the good news is, Diane will be here for two more years as our colleague, and that's very, very good news for Elaine and for me. Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, the minority leader on the Senate floor. Both President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris also putting out statements congratulating Senator Feinstein on her service and on her retirement. Both the president and vice president served with Senator Feinstein when they were in the Senate. New York Times reporting Raquel Welch, the voluptuous movie actress who became the 1960s first major American sex symbol and maintained that image for a half century in show business, died on Wednesday at her home in Los Angeles. She was 82. Raquel Welch was on C-SPAN in 2002 at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., talking about her experience with public service and Latino issues. Here's a minute and a half of it where she talks about meeting Army General Tommy Franks, perhaps best known as the general who led the attack on the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2001 and then the invasion of Iraq in 2003. As I was following Mr. Osborne and Mrs. Osborne into the dinner for the president, someone took me aside and said to me that none other than General Tommy Franks would like to say hello to me. Well, I was, I was very honored, who wouldn't be, but I didn't know exactly why. And, and then I became, I, I came face to face with this tall, wonderfully elegant man. And the general proceeded to tell me that unbeknownst to me, I had stood at his bedside those 30 years ago in Saigon when he was seriously wounded still a lieutenant at the time, and that he had never forgotten it. And he told me how much it meant to him and to all the other soldiers that were serving there. And believe me, it was gratifying to, well, to think that in some small way that I had done something of value for the men who fought there. Needless to say, I don't think I'll ever top that moment with General Franks again. Actress Raquel Welch in 2002 at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. from C-SPAN's video library. Raquel Welch has died at the age of 82. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. You can sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night. 